Are you offering your clients the experience they really want? Or are you offering them what you think they want? Join hosts Laura Gregg and David Partain from FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds as they talk with a variety of industry experts and advisors, just like you, about their latest industry research to help you develop the flexible mindset you need to rise above the crowd. Hello, and welcome to the Flexible Advisor Podcast. I'm Laura Gregg, and I am joined with my favorite co-host, David Partain. Hello, David. Hello, my favorite co-host back, Laura. (laughs) I think we have a good one in store for our listeners today. Yeah, I'm very excited. You know, on the Flexible Advisor, we seek to invite guests that will provide unique insights and actionable ideas for advisors that want to fine-tune or grow their businesses all while deepening those very important client relationships. What's in it for the client is something that we throw around a lot in our market efforts, but it can be hard to remember that mantra as we get excited to tell the world all about our firm, all about our capabilities, and all about our expertise. A few months ago, I was on the Morningstar site and I found some articles written by today's guests about the importance of first understanding what the client needs, not thinking about what you want to sell the clients. You know, Laura, you're so right. You would think that that would be fundamental to sales, but for so many people in firms, boy, we like to, in those first few slides, we like to tell them how great we are, what we do. And you know what, that is important, but you know the old saying by Teddy Roosevelt, People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And one of the ways to let them know that we care is to not start the quote-unquote sales process until you have first clarified what the client needs. You know, when I speak to potential podcast guests, I try to get a sense of how their experiences will complement the Flexible Advisor series and will they be able to provide some actionable ideas for our listeners So as I spoke with our our guest today, Samuel Dean, the pages of my notebook were left with so many things starred as to where we could go with our conversation today. We could talk about starting an IRA by determining which small niche or ideal client you want to serve. We could talk about how to build scale as a solo practitioner. We could talk about the importance of content creation and social media in building a brand and on and on. So we could go deep on any of those themes, but our guest today also enables us to continue our ongoing discussion of building diversity in this business. Samuel Dean created an RIA three years ago as a 25-year-old black man. Today, he's going to share his story of being a child of immigrants and how that factored into the path he has chosen for himself and the millennial clients he serves. Samuel, Welcome to the Flexible Advisor, and I'm I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit more about yourself and, and what you're doing these days. Hey, Laura uh, and Dave, thanks so much for having me. You know, it's really a pleasure to be here to, you know, share a little bit about, you know, my story and, you know, my experiences with, with building a firm. You know, like you mentioned, I, I, I launched my firm three years ago, and this June will actually make, you know, the completion of three years. And, you know, I started with no assets, no clients, no revenue, no anything, just sort of, you know, family support and a will to be able to, you know, provide sort of the financial advice that that my generation deserves that we didn't quite have have access to. And so, 
you know, throughout my my time of running my firm, I've been fortunate enough to, you know, get my voice out there by writing for Morningstar and and working on a few projects with Investopedia. And it's it's definitely been an, an exciting journey so far. So Samuel, it sounds like we have a lot to cover and could cover. So let's I want to back up just a bit and say what drew you into the wealth management industry itself? Yeah, uh, it's actually a, a pretty interesting story. I, you know, I, I come from an immigrant family. I'm, I'm an immigrant myself. I actually moved here in 1999 when I was seven. Oh, cool. And, you know, I think that that, you know, experience you know, of being an immigrant coming to a new country and just sort of, you know, trying to achieve the American dream. I think that 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 largely shaped, you know, my life, my aspirations and my perspective, you know, knowing where my parents come from and witnessing our family's trajectory really shaped my perspective on money, on legacy wealth, and even in, in manifestation. You know, my dad never graduated high school. You know, my mom didn't graduate college. They decided to move to America, and my mom ended up, you know, passing a nursing exam. And that was really what, you know, helped us in, in, in our journey, you know, and she became a registered nurse. And I remember when I first moved to America, I, you know, my family and I, the three of us, we lived in sort of like a brownstone and we only had one room that belonged to us that had like a two, two sort of like a sofa, two seat sofa, had a bed, had a small TV. And that was the, the space for the three of us. Everything else in, in, in the, in the property was a shared space. And so going from that to living in someone's basement to a one bedroom apartment, to then a five bedroom house with the white picket fence and a you know front yard and a backyard and an actual mailbox I can walk <laughs> to in the morning just sort of those experiences and seeing you know how hard work and and manifestation can really you know move the needle yeah. and so you know growing up my mother's mindset around ownership and equity had a really you know profound influence on me you know and and that was really what sparked my desire to be a business owner number 1 I, I went to college actually to be a biology major. Hmm. I uh, was on the pre-med track and throughout my college career, I just decided that it wasn't for me. You know, I was sort of pushed in that direction because as a son of immigrants, you're sort of a, a disappointment unless you're a doctor, <laughs> a lawyer, or like an engineer. And so to choose a different path, you know, made my parents, you know, pretty nervous. But so I you know, I decided to, you know, I graduated college. I didn't, you know, change my major because I kind of came to this epiphany towards my junior year or so. And I decided to, you know, go after my MBA. I was fortunate to start working with my mom, you know, prior to making that decision and really getting a taste of what entrepreneurship was like. And, you know, once I pursued my MBAs, when I uh, started working in finance, mm -hmm. and I quickly realized that the industry at large was relatively the same. You know, the most well-known firms had the same culture, was built on what I viewed as the same broken business models. And I knew that it was going to be unfit for my generation. And so I noticed a pretty, you know, huge opportunity in the tech space from a wealth management lens. You know, I realized there were a niche group of investors that experienced very specific pain points, had exposure to certain opportunities to build wealth and, you know, sort of with, with ownership being the end goal. I took the time to become a student of the industry and devoted my time to really, you know, a, a deep learning of my craft and, and, and my niche. And from that moment is, was when I really became committed to 
creating a wealth management firm that addressed those needs, the constraints, the concerns, and those opportunities that were sort of inherent for millennials in the tech industry. Oh, that's cool. So a couple of questions come to mind. So where did you, your family immigrate from? So I was actually born in St. Lucia in uh -huh. the Caribbean, but my family is from Guyana in South America. Where did you move to in the U.S. when you came here? We moved to Brooklyn, New York. So I spent, yeah, I spent the first seven years from seven to 14 in Brooklyn. And then from 14 onward, I lived in Long Island, went to high school in Long Island. I went to college in SUNY Albany, mm -hmm. which is a public school upstate New York. And most recently, I, my wife and my son recently moved to Atlanta, Georgia. So we've been here for about four or five months now. So I just want to let you know that we are not disappointed in you, Samuel. We are happy to select this career. <laughs> so talking, talking about your firm, did you go through, okay, you have your MBA. Did you go through like a business plan process to say, hey, this is the group? Or was this something innate within you? Oh, yeah. Being an MBA student, I sort of got mm -hmm. used to writing a business plan for almost every class. And I remember, you know, and I was, I was actually working full time while, you know, going to school to get my MBA. So it would, my days would look like, you know, work nine to five and then class from, you know, six to 11 and then whatever business planning I can do after that, or maybe on my commute. And it wasn't necessarily you know, the plan from the beginning, when I first launched my firm, my wife and I, my wife was actually in, in finance as well. And we were sort of approaching this as a, a power couple, if you will, and sort of building our firm that way. And my wife went to a tech conference and came home and completely pivoted and said, Hey, you know, I know this was our plan and, you know, I'm just not as interested in finance as I once was. And I want to pivot to technology. I think that, you know, it could, it is going to be the future of our industry and what better skill set to have in-house than to, to learn how to build. And it made, it made sense to me. And so for my wife sort of developing and, and pivoting into the tech industry and, and sort of gaining the skill set necessary to, to be in demand. You started interviewing with, you know, Spotify and Netflix and those sorts of companies. And I was able to sort of see the type of offer that, you know, she was getting. And I, that, that was when I had my, that real epiphany of, oh, wow, like I can really build a business that not only just focuses on comprehensive financial planning, which is different than, you know, a lot of investment advisors, but to have a, take a specialist approach, right. Rather than a generalist approach and focus on equity compensation and the tax, tax planning that goes around that. And so once I sort of, you know, came to this idea, I spent, you know, sleepless nights sort of planning and going to sleep with my iPad on my chest, just sort of taking down notes and doing research and, and all of these different things. And, you know, one thing that I learned, you know, was really something called the user experience methodology. And it's a pretty big, I guess, field within technology where you're essentially designing software to meet the needs of a very ideal customer. The colors, the shapes, the user experience, the design, everything is based on research, it's based on data, and it, it's supposed to resonate with an ideal client. And so I decided to take that same approach with designing my firm. You know, being an RIA, I don't have to accept commissions, I don't have to sell products. And so I sort of, 
chose to build my firm in a way that I felt was going to be an ideal fit for millennials in tech. And that was, you know, really how, how that started. And, you know, things kind of took off from there. So, so Samuel, tell us about your first client that wasn't a family member. Did you, was, <laughs> was that first client in the tech industry? I love that question. That wasn't a family member. <laughs> no, my first my first client actually was not in in tech. You know, I sort of came to this epiphany. You know, I, there was a point where I just came. I was just tired of planning, and I just decided to get my get my feet wet and step out there. And so, when I originally launched my firm, I focused on just millennials. And what I realized was that millennials come in all different shapes and sizes. You know, there is no content or no you know material that will resonate with all millennials. And that was a challenge that I, that I faced when I launched, I soon realized, well, you know, if I'm not the biggest salesperson, right, I'm not really big on putting myself out there and trying to sell people on, on products or strategies or anything that I know, you know, the, the strategy that's going to work best for me is putting out content and whoever that content relates to, you know, having them reach out to me. And I realized that marketing to or putting out content solely for millennials, which is such a pretty vague demographic, was wasn't really efficient because again, there isn't you know, there, there are very few topics that all millennials sort of see eye to eye on. And so again, once I sort of realized, well, may, maybe there's a I can, you know, go even further with this niche and maybe target a specific subset of millennials, that's when I really started to see the success that you know, just came along with being a specialist and working with an ideal, ideal client, an ideal niche. And, you know, things kind of went from there. So I found you through Morningstar. I, I read one of your articles and I knew I wanted to talk to you. So as I often do, you know, I stalked you. <laughs> <laughs> and you were, you were true. You truly have a millennial feeling firm because it was all digital. You know, I, I often look for, you know, an email to go directly to somebody or call and, and that wasn't available, but I, I found you and I, I appreciate your, your talking to me and being on the podcast, hey, Laura, but have the yeah. lawsuits for the stalking, have they, have those been settled? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. <laughs> I think so. Okay, I good. think so. It's all professional, though. <laughs> so, you know, I know you're passionate about creating content and, you know, you believe it's a driver of your brand. Tell us a little bit more about, you know, other than me finding you, how content is driving your business and what do you think you're doing differently or more uniquely than others that you're seeing out there? Man, that's that's such a, an awesome question. I, you know, I think... I came to the realization and, you know, there, there are other, there's been other, you know, financial advisors who have, who was you know, sort of brought this up as well is that you can't make someone want a financial advisor, right? Like something has to happen in that individual's life that prompts them to think, oh man, maybe I should get a second opinion on this, or maybe I should reach out to someone to make sure I'm not making any mistakes or, Hey, I have no idea what I'm doing. I need some help, right? Those so those, there has to be some sort of life event that happens that triggers someone to have that thought, particularly if you grew up in a home where your parents didn't have financial advisors. And so I think once I realized that, I knew that what was going to be important was having information out there that, again, was relevant to my target demographic and that you know people could look to as a resource. And so my entire sort of, you know, 
content uh, strategy is is really to, to put stuff out there, whether it's through blogs, whether it's through newsletters, whether it's whether it's through social media platforms like Instagram or Twitter or LinkedIn, and just letting the world know who I am and what it is that I do. Obviously, not in a, in a, in a boastful way, but more so in an educational way. And so I, you know, led with education first. You know, I. I decided what was going to be the best medium that I could get my message across, whether it, whether it was going to be through writing or through video or through audio like podcasts. And once I decided on the medium that I felt the most comfortable delivering that message to, it was then all about figuring out which platforms are my ideal uh, audiences on. And so, you know, throughout the three years that I've been, you know, working at the strategy, I found that LinkedIn has been probably LinkedIn and Instagram has probably been the two vehicles that sort of I get the most awareness from from clients, while Twitter has been the vehicle that I've been able to build genuine relationships with as it pertains to folks in my industry. And so once I started realizing sort of what worked for me and, and the type of content that I'm that I have fun creating and the platforms that was best fit to distribute that content, you know, it's, it's just pretty much being consistent at that point. And sooner or later, when that event happens in that person's life, you know, they're going to think, oh, if, 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 if the, the thought is that they need to hire a financial advisor, my hope is that with them subscribing to my newsletter, reading my blog, seeing me on social media, and just sort of seeing me everywhere, that I would be the first thought that comes to mind when thinking, hey, I need to speak with a financial advisor. Yeah. And I, I love some of the educational stuff that you're putting out. I mean, I've seen it on um, Morningstar, of course, you know, all the, I think what I, what drew me in was your advice on on how to do social media. And that's, it can be such a hiccup for so many advisors, but I know, you know, when we talked a couple months ago, you talked a lot about behavioral finance and your commitment to that. So tell us a little bit about your views on behavioral finance what does it mean to you? And, but more importantly, what does it mean for your clients? Yeah, I have this joke with my colleagues that if you're doing financial planning and you don't feel like a therapist, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> and I wholeheartedly believe in that, you know, and, you know, I think what, what really triggered this sort of emotion means that you know, there was there was a an, an award that I won, and I don't remember the exact award it was. I think it was like an award from Invest Investment News or Investopedia. I'm not exactly sure which one. And you know that entire you know sort of recognition made my day, especially you know coming from you know not necessarily spending much time in the industry and starting my firm from the ground up. It it sort of you know really was a staple in my day. I later had an, a meeting with a, a client of mine who was, you know, about my age, and she recently been through an IPO. And we were having conversations around, you know, different options that we can sort of, we can sort of uh, move forward with and different strategies we can deploy. And I, I would never forget this, you know, before we got off our call, she said, you know, hey, Sam, I just want to say thank you. This is the first time in my life I've ever felt happy and comfortable to talk about money. And wow. to say that to someone that you've, this is maybe only my second or third meeting with this client. And so to be able to have that amount of trust and transparency with someone was really moving for me. It really made me feel as though, you know, I can make an impact not only to help people, you know, build wealth, but to help them develop their own money story. You know, your relationship with money isn't something that you decide 
to have and you wake up. It's something that has kind of been passed down to you, right? Like your your relationship and your your how you view money today is 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 a lot of it is dependent on your childhood. A lot of it is dependent on your parents' relationship with money and what they've passed down to you, what you've seen growing up. And certain experiences that you have in life will either reinforce certain behaviors or it'll change those behaviors. And so it's important for me to, if I can understand, you know, the fears and motivations that my clients have as it pertains to money, I'll just be that much more, you know, better positioned to be a valuable thought partner and, you know, sort of financial advisor along their journey. And for me, it's really important to align the emotional incentives as well as the financial incentives that are involved because that is the one true way to build sustainable wealth. And so that is sort of an approach that I found to be really helpful with my clients, particularly the younger clients, because we're not taught this stuff in school. You know, we're not, you know, unless you, you know, come from a certain household, you, some folks, quite frankly, have no idea what's going on with their finances. And so I think that pairing that education also with, you know, again, that emotional aspect to managing money is, is extremely important. Thank you for sharing that. And it, it, brings to mind, and you may not be familiar with this, Samuel, but we we just completed an advisor wellness survey, and we asked about a lot of different things. And we asked advisors in our survey to tell us what they loved most about the job. And income was way at the bottom of the list, but winning by a landslide was the ability to help their clients and to serve their clients. And I think what you just said really just drove that that home and uh, your clients are lucky to have you. And, you know, as we mentioned, when we were preparing for this a while back, Flexures also has done research of investors' views of diversity in the advisory space and advisors' view. And we just have launched our, our second study in 2021, comparing what the landscape looked like in 2019 and with all that happened in 2020 has have things changed. And so one of the compliments that we've gotten on this podcast uh, that I appreciate most, and I think David does as well, is that we're not afraid to have difficult conversations. And when you and I first spoke, I asked you, you know, about your thoughts of diversity. How do we bring more diversity into the space? And you said, I can talk to that, but I'm not sure, you know, I'll I'll give you the sound bites that you're expecting to hear. And so, Samuel, we're we're looking, you know, for your candid views on on what's holding this industry back from younger people and also people of color. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I appreciate you for, for asking this. And well, first I'll start by saying this. I think that this industry and, and there are obviously other industries as well that sort of use code words like buzzwords. And for me, I think diversity is one of them. And, you know, if you look at the, the core of the word, diversity can really be applied to anything, right? So if you have, you know, a conference, and this is obviously like very hypothetical, but you can have a conference with five white guys on a panel wearing different color shirts and folks will call that diversity. This is my, my opinion. And so I think that there are plenty of conferences, plenty of companies that are sort of, you know, talking about diversity and number one, not really doing anything as far as like their initiatives. And number two, it's just become sort of a buzzword when I think it should be you know, targeted at 
a very particular thing. And so I think a, the, a good way to sort of sort of give my perspective is is an analogy that I, I heard Daniel Kaluuya mentioned, who's you know an, an Emmy Award winner, and he basically painted a story that that was, that goes like this, right? Let's say you have an older white woman who is inside their home, minding their business, maybe baking cookies, and someone breaks into her home and you know steals things, robs things, causes damage to her home, and those sorts of things, and she's left really distraught. Would it make sense for the police to go to her home, put her in handcuffs, take her to the police station and question her about, hey, why did this happen to you? And the lady's like, hey, I, I don't know. You know, this, I don't know this person that was kind of in my house minding my business. And this person came in my house and, and robbed me. And the cop says, well, why did this happen to you, though? What did you do for this to happen? Does that sound like like a reasonable conversation or a reasonable approach for the cop to have? Yeah, no. And that's exactly <laughs> what's happening right now. And so you you have, you know, industry folks will invite you to conferences, invite you to speak on podcasts because you're black and they want to be viewed as being involved in the diversity initiative. And then they ask you questions like, how did we get here? What can we do to fix this? I have no idea. I'm not the one that put us in this position. You know, like I don't have the answers to this. You know, black people came to America as slaves on the balance sheet. We represented wealth in America. And yet we're the only group that has been historically has been, you know, structurally and, and, and systematically barred from creating wealth for our for ourselves. And I think that that is something that's ingrained in this country's history, you know, and it's ingrained in, in plenty of, of institutions. And so if you want real diversity, let's, let's sit down and have a real conversation about what it means to make change. We sure we can talk about how we got here. But we, we all know the answers to that. And quite frankly, I think that if industry leaders really want to change as it pertains to diversity, it would have happened these companies have millions, if not billions of dollars to create the change that they want to see. They do it all the time and, and with different initiatives. And so I don't see why making your organization more diverse, hiring more black and brown advisors, not to just stay at entry-level roles, but to actually promote and, and have them rise within the company, you know, those are things that you can easily do. And so, you know, I think that there's a lack of diversity in this industry because that's how folks want it to be. And it's not necessarily my job to, you know, change that. I'm going to do, obviously, play my role and make the change that, that, that I want to see happen. But I, I, I do get tired of answering questions about diversity. You know, yeah. I do get tired of only being asked to speak on topics about diversity instead of what is it like to run you know, your firm, what are some best practices when working with millennials you know, or working with a niche, you know, ask me something else other than diversity, because, you know, that we, we, we are building businesses at the same time. We're not just diverse human beings. And so that's kind of how I feel about that topic. Thank you. Thank you very much for going there.
And I know that we we talk a lot about, you know, what we're doing at Northern Trust and our, the president of our asset management business, Chandran Thomas, uses a great example, which I think really is important in the context of what you've said. And he said, you know, it, it it's great as we're hiring young, diverse talent that's necessary and it's all good. But unless we're bringing in diverse talent at all levels of the organization, we're really looking at creating a scenario where it could be 20 to 30 years before we see the benefit, before those young, fresh faces just out of college are in you know, have the experience level and are senior enough in the organization to make meaningful change. And so anyhow, I, I appreciate your comments. And I, you know, in our recent survey, about a third of our respondents were solo advisors. And we were talking with the, the researchers that helped us with this about the power of the solo practitioner. And, you know, it, it feels like with practitioners like you, you're bringing, you know, you may not ever end up having a team of 20 advisors because that that's not probably what drives you, but could a series of more solo advisors of, of different ages and genders and, you know, skin colors help us move that path to diversity? And so we, we're not so reliant on the largest firms. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think you know, in its nature, you know, the RIA channel has a lot of room to grow. I think it's still a relatively small aspect of the financial services industry. Like when you speak to consumers, a lot of folks don't know the difference between an advisor who works in an RIA and an advisor who is a broker dealer. And, you know, these days you're seeing a lot of advisors in those institutional spaces sort of break away and whether they go on their own or they start their own teams, you know, you're seeing a lot of, you know, those breakaways happen. And, you know, advisors are transitioning to the RIA space. So I think that there's really bullish on the space. And I think that there's opportunity to, to, for growth. And I think with that growth, you'll, you'll, you'll be able to find, you know, RIA firms that aren't, you know, focused on recruiting. They aren't focused on cold calls. They aren't necessarily salespeople where you can, you know, as a black advisor, you may be able to find a nice fit somewhere you can call home. And that I would say is a, is a goal of mine at, at some point to be able to you know, build a team where I can employ other black and brown people and and really push the needle for, you know, economic mobility within my community. But I think because of, because, you know, starting your own RIA, you're starting a company from the ground up, you may or may not be bringing clients and or revenue from, you know, your other firms. I think it's, it's, it's challenging and difficult to build a large firm from the ground up where you, where you're employing multiple advisors. I think it's, it's my opinion that a lot of the, you know, the advisors in the RIA space are building what some would call lifestyle practices, you know, smaller firms that more or less align with that individual's ideal lifestyle. And, you know, the focus there is to be happy and not necessarily you know, to be a large firm and to be 100% focused on growth. So I do think that the RAA space has some challenges to bringing more black and brown folks into the space. But for those that, you know, have aspirations of building a large firm, I think that, you know, there, there, there is a way to accomplish that. Well, Samuel, thank you so much for giving us your perspective. And as longtime listeners know, we like research and we've done a lot of research on a lot of different topics but it is really fun when we get to test industry stereotypes. 
All right, so knowing that you focus on the millennial client, what are some cliches that drive you crazy and you're tired of hearing about millennials because you don't, they don't stand up to reality? Oh, man. <laughs> I think that not necessarily the financial service industry. I think, you know, as a society, people think that like millennials, millennials are lazy. We are entitled. We don't want to work hard for certain things. You know, we complain about student loan debt and that stuff. But I think that if you sort of look at what has happened over, you know, our lifetime, you will see that we've been through historical events that no other uh, generation has been through, it, particularly in, in a certain time frames. You look at the financial crisis, the, the housing market crash, um, when you look at this pandemic, you know, there are the student loan debt crisis. There are a lot of things that, you know, have happened to millennials that, again, no other generation has faced. And so I think that if we take a look, you know, under the hood, you know, you'll find that there are tons of millennials who are crushing it in life and work in their professional career and their personal career, who are working harder than future generations have, who have, you know, several businesses, multiple streams of income on top of a nine to five. These are things that at least you know, I'm not aware of, you know, having multiple streams of income at a, at a rather young age was something that was pretty popular back then. I think it takes a lot of grit and determination to bring your best self to work every day while going home and, you know, still putting your best self into whatever project or business or side hustle that, you know, you, you want to bring to life. And so, you know, I think that those are negative perceptions of, of millennials are, are definitely not all facts. Yeah. So Samuel Lauren mentioned at the start that she felt we could talk to you for hours. And I do agree with her. The one thing I was looking on your website, and one thing I really love is when you say contact us, you say, please choose the right kind of meeting for you. And it was like, man, I, I that that's really cool that before you even have talked to somebody, tell us how you want to even be talked to. That's so that's so cool. As we do with all our podcast guests, and since we're coming up on the end of the podcast, I'd ask that you leave the audience with a couple actionable ideas. And if you would, tell us a couple of things to keep front and center in your mind if you're considering as an advisor starting your own RIA. And secondly, is there one thing advisors can do today to help introduce this industry to more diverse professionals? Man, awesome question, David. So to answer your first question, for you know anyone out there that's considering starting their own RIA, I can't speak for other advisors, but this is the best decision I've ever made. You know the fulfillment that I feel from helping others and and helping them build wealth, helping them build a close relationship with money. You know I think it's one of the few industries where you can help yourself by helping other people wholeheartedly. You know I think that the financial services industry as a whole doesn't really have two you know, doesn't have a great reputation, you know, due to big banks and Wall Street and those sorts of things. But I think that as an RIA, you control the narrative and you control, you know, other people's perspective on your industry. And there's a lot of impact that could be done there. So I would say, you know, my best advice is to, you know, as a, as a, as a solo advisor is to figure out, you know, your target market, your niche, you know, what works for you to, you know, get comfortable with putting yourself out there and delivering content in whichever, you know, which, whichever mode you feel is, is best for you. And, you know, just put yourself out there and be consistent. You know, there's no, 
I think, secret sauce to running a successful or growing a successful RIA, other than just planning, being consistent, being able to pivot. And the key thing that has really benefited me was really just building genuine relationships with folks in the industry and and being like a sponge and soaking up, soaking up everything that I could learn from the people around me. Another thing that has been really beneficial is, you know, my tech stack. I would have never thought 10 years ago I would be able to run an entire wealth management firm on $20,000, $25,000 per year of overhead. And I think that technology has been, you know, the, the, the key factor in me being able to, to build what I've built. You know, I have a location independent firm. I can literally work from anywhere as long as I have my laptop. And, you know, great technology like, you know, Altruist and Wealthbox and Riskalyze and Precise FP, you know, those are the things that sort of are the engine of, of my firm. And, you know, I think that it's, it's really helped me move the needle and be more efficient as a solo advisor. To answer your second question around what can, you know, we do to help, you know, introduce more diverse professionals into the space, you know, I think it's easier said than done, but I think, you know, there are many people that don't know how to become a financial advisor. I think for the most part, a lot of people, there's like a clear pathway to become a lawyer, a clear pathway to become a doctor, but there's no real clear pathway to become a financial advisor. I think for the most part, a lot of people still think it's this sales driven role that you get recruited into that you have to write down 50 names of folks who, you know, has a quarter million dollars or more that can qualify to be a client. And I think that that initial perspective, you know, turns off a lot of folks. It almost turned me off. And if I wasn't in business school and was, wasn't determined to try to figure out a way how I can be in finance while running my own business, you know, I probably would have chosen another profession just simply based off of the infrastructure that a lot of these firms have. And so I think really by, you know, introducing this independent space to college students and doing education from there, I think that that's how we can, you know, introduce a lot more diverse professionals into the space. Wow. That's great stuff. Well, Samuel, you have been a great story and it has been a real delight to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. And please come back. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. If you are an advisor and would like to know more about Dean Financial, just visit deanfinancial.com. That's D-E-A-N-E financial.com. If you like this podcast, you may also like the other FlexShares podcast called Funds in Focus. Check it out today and you will find it wherever you get your podcasts. For myself and Laura Gregg, we want to thank you, our listeners, for joining us on today's episode of The Flexible Advisor. Thank you for listening to The Flexible Advisor podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds or Northern Trust. All investments involve risk, including possible loss of principal. Before investing, carefully consider the FlexShares investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus and a summary prospectus, copies of which may be obtained by visiting www.flexshares.com. Read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Foresight Fund Services, LLC Distributor. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. 
Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Although we attempt to keep the information complete and current, we do not warrant that the content herein is accurate, complete, or current. We make no commitment to update the content herein. It is your responsibility to verify any information before relying on it. The content of this podcast may include technical inaccuracies. We may make changes in the products and or services described herein at any time. We provide you this information with the understanding that we are not rendering accounting, legal, or tax advice. Please consult your legal or tax advisor concerning such matters.